and welcome to Reliving My Youth. My name is Noel Vogelman. My guest this week is musician Chris Bostock. He's very talented, been in some amazing bands, Spirit of Destiny, Subway Sect, Dave Stewart and the Special Cowboys. That's right, Dave Stewart from The Eurythmics. And of course, Joe Boxers, who had the massive song Just Got Lucky. I mean, that first album was fantastic. It should have had more hits. We talk about the reason why they only had the one hit in America. We talk about the other bands. We also talk about how he got involved in music. Very talented guy. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with him. So, Chris, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks, Noel. Yeah. So while, uh, you know, researching, you know, you and uh, Joe Boxers, I came across uh, a side project by Dave Stewart, which I never knew that you were involved with, Dave Stewart and this, you know, the Spiritual Cowboys. I only really knew one song, which was uh, Party Time that was in the Fatliners movie. Fat and the-
I discovered because I never really heard, heard of you know the the band. I don't think they really did much. You know, you guys didn't really do much in the states. And I absolutely love the two albums. They're fantastic. Why didn't you guys have like more success? You know, in the states, do you feel? Um, well, we had um, Jack Talking was a hit over here.
and the album went gold. Both albums went gold in France. Right. We had a lot of fans in Europe, and we spent most of the three years touring around Europe. And um, yeah, so 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 Party Town was in Flatliners, and um, we also had one called um, uh, Love Shines that was co-written with Michael Kamen that does all the film music. Okay. And that yeah, and but Dave was known at the time for soundtracks. And uh, because he, he'd had Lily Was Here with Candy Dolfer, which was massive over here. That was number one, I think. Right, yeah. But wait, wait, as soon as Eurythmics split up, Dave got on to me and said, would you like to join this new band I want to set up? And we're going to call it the Spiritual Cowboys. And it's inspired by South American gaucho cowboy types, so sort of Native Americans from South America. And they, they had all these beads and fancy gear. And, and it looks like a really good image. So we, we all dyed our hair black and... Right. And this kind of Mexican bandit look. So it was, it was all good fun. Is, is that what like intrigued you? Like, you know, the, the, like the style that he wanted to portray, not the music, or was it the music first and the style? Also, well, it was, it, it was, um, he had, he had a lot of a, a backlog of, of, of music that he'd written that wasn't released with the Eurythmics because probably wasn't suitable, but was suitable for him. So yeah. we had a lot to, to, you know, to be getting on with. Right. But the, it's, it's nice to have a, a style to, accompany it and and the, 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 the spiritual cowboys concept you know it resonated with all of us we you know we jumped on that that pretty quick right yeah i'm kind of kicking myself I, I discovered you know the the band's so late and it was only the two albums like why why was it just the two albums that dave just say i want to move on to the next thing yeah he, he's he likes his projects as Dave because all the time we were doing that, he would be doing soundtracks in another studio. Then he'd be remixing the Eurythmics Greatest Hits in another studio. And then he'd be making a video in another studio. And then he'd be running his record company, which was over the road and premises over the road. Right. So he kept really, he liked to keep really busy and do things all the time. And I think he had a lot of, um, a lot of ideas he wanted to fulfill once the Eurythmics were over. So, you know, this was one of them. Yeah. But, you know, it, it, it was, uh, you know, I guess a short time, but you guys, I, I really enjoy the music. So, I'm, you know, it's definitely something I'm going to keep, you know, uh, listening to, even though it's uh, over 30 years old, you know, right now. But what was he like? How different was he compared to, like, the other lead singers you had? You know, we meant, you know, Dick Wayne, Joe Boxers, and obviously Paul Weller we'll get into a little bit. How, how different was he? Dave, well, well Dave is really a collaborator. He's not really a lead singer. This was a great opportunity for him to, 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 to do some singing. And um, but, but obviously Dig Wayne was a full on singer and, and, and as was Paul Weller. And, um, but um, Dave's very much a, a collaborator and he's collaborated with you know, some of the biggest names in music. Yeah. And um, while we were out there, he, he was continuing to win producer of the year awards. And, and so he was, he's really a collaborator producer. Right. Now, like, yeah, you mentioned, like, obviously, he's not wasn't really a lead singer in, you know, uh, Eurythmics and with any Lennox. So was this like he felt this was kind of his like time to like kind of shine to be out in in the spotlight, so to speak? Yeah, absolutely. This is yeah. one of one of his projects. Yeah, he um, it was, it was a great opportunity actually because he, he's like a musical um magnet, Davis. We'd be recording in L.A. in his studio there and. Some of the, you know, some huge names have dropped by, George Harrison, Tom Petty, you know, Bob Dylan, Lou Reed, they all came by to, to, to come and see what was going on because he, um, 
because he's a collaborator, I suppose, he'd actually he collaborated with lots of these people and, and still does to this day. Right. So like, when those guys came in, I mean, how much what, what, did you like idolize any? I'm sure, you know, growing up, you know, the Beatles were probably, you know, one of the top. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Was it like, just like, oh my God, I'm in the room with some of these people? Well, but particularly with George Harrison, yeah, because he was always my favorite Beatle. Yeah. I grew up with those. And I remember my, yeah, my, my first, the first songs I ever remember were, were him singing George Harrison songs. And so when he came in, and that was amazing. So we, we, um, we set up and we actually played right through the night with George Harrison, um, me and Dave and a couple of other members of the band. And we just, and he was, he was coming up with new ideas and playing. He was actually playing bits of Indian music. I, I kid you not. He actually put some Indian music on. And right. uh, yeah, he was coming up with some great ideas. And um, it was just fun going right through the night. So that was a, a, amazing for me. Yeah. Now, yeah, you mentioned like, you know, obviously being one of like idols growing up. Uh, like, how did you get involved in music? And like, what was kind of like your early, like, you know, memories of music? Uh, well, it was, it was, it was here in, I've got, I've got these older brothers, much older than me. Right. So I grew up in a household full of Beatles and Stones and Motown. And we had a, a music room. So we had a piano and one of those harmoniums that you, um, like that you get in a church and you pedal on the pedals to get the, the, the wind going through the, through the, through the, uh, the, the, the pipes and, and, uh, and, and these, these, these draw bars that you pull out and you get these extra pipes. It's an amazing thing. And so, um, so there's a lot of music around. We had a cello as well and um, guitars and things. So I grew up in a musical household and my mum sent me to piano lessons when I was six, classical piano lessons, which was a brilliant um, way to begin really, because you get to know your way around the keyboard and and even though it's not the kind of music you're going to end up playing, it's really useful to know because it's, it's, you know, it's, it's good stuff. Right. So it started on piano, then it went to guitar when I was 12. Yeah. I switched to guitar, fancy giving that a try. And I wanted to um, be a guitarist and I, I auditioned different, in different bands and things and we had lots of um, rehearsal sessions and um, eventually punk came along, you know, punk rock in Bristol and that completely changed everything because suddenly everyone wanted to be in a band and there were label, record labels and fanzines and gigs everywhere and so I started my first band, proper band there when I was about 17, 1977 and um, the, the, the other guy that I formed the band with, he couldn't play bass at all. He always wanted to play guitar. So I said, I'll play bass, you play guitar. So I could play keyboards, bass and guitar, you see. So that, it, it all began from that punk rock scene, really. Now, like, you know, obviously punk rock, it's, I mean, not, is it more like an attitude than actually playing an instrument? I mean, because you have a classical training and now you're playing like, you know, uh, punk music. So is it kind of like, you really need to know to, to play instruments or you just have to look the part? <laughs> um, well, I, I suppose that there's less pressure. I mean, I think because it didn't really matter too much how well you played, that's what, that was the motivation for so many bands to get up and actually do it. They weren't um, intimidated. Right. So, yeah, it was a great way to, to, to launch something new. And, and so many great things came out of that punk period. You know, right. over here, it was Elvis Costello and the Police and Squeeze and lots of really good bands that weren't really punk bands, but they were allowed to, you know, to get out there because of punk. But punk sort of, you know, made way for them, if you like. Right. Yeah. So then, I guess your your first really big band was Subway Sack, right? Yeah. 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 That, that, yeah. That had a, which I guess had kind of different, like you know, 
in, in incarnations, so to speak. Um, so I guess talk about the, the, the first version of it. Well, the first version of Subway Set was with Vic, Vic Goddard and his mates. They, right. they, were, um, they were going up to see the, the, the punk bands playing in London just, just before punk came along. There was something called Pub Rock. It, was, it, it came up Pub Rock, really. And they, Vic and his soul boy mates were going up to see uh, the, the, these bands. And Malcolm McLaren bumped into them and said, are you a band? And they sort of fibbed a bit and said, well, yeah, yeah, kind of. And he said, oh, well, I want you to come and play the, the 100 Club Punk Festival in a few weeks' time. And he put them in a the rehearsal studio. Even though they'd only sort of, they hadn't been playing long, they, they managed to get something together. And so they weren't, you know, particularly musicians at all, but they were in the right place at the right time. And uh, and Bernard Rhodes, the Clash manager, managed them, but um, for some reason he didn't think they were that good, so he sacked them all except for Vic, you see. Okay. But, but then he wanted a proper band to come up to 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 to, to work with for his studio because he, he thought along the lines of Motown. Uh, he he liked the idea of you have in-house songwriters, in-house bands, and then you can have a whole string of different artists, you see. Right. So so Bert Bernard had the studio and the rehearsal space. So he he put, he um, recruited me and the other guys that became Subway Set to be the house band for all his projects. And and Vic was going to be the in-house songwriter. And so the first uh, artist was Johnny Britton, who came up from okay. Bristol. And that was, that was, and, and then, we, then we ended up doing a few other artists, but, but mainly we did Vic because he had this, all these songs. And so we did this al album called Songs for Sale that was, released on London Records. We got signed up to this major label. And um, and we toured that. We did masses of tours around the, around the UK. And uh, also, but, but significantly, Bernard helped us set up this place called Club Left in Soho, the Whiskey Go-Go, which was a weekly club where we could showcase all the different singers. And we were the house band there. And um, that, was, that, that was a really, that whole, um, that period, 1980 to 82, was just so busy because yeah. we were working at different sets every week for different artists. We never stopped. Right. And uh, that, that was the busiest point ever, probably. Yeah. Were there any memorable like lead singers that kind of came through there? Well, yeah. Well, we had a great one called Lady Blue, who was a kind of like um, Billie Holiday type of thing. But then, of course, we, we recruited Dig, Dig Wayne, who became the Joe Boxer singer. So we... Um, Bernard went off to uh, to New York to convince him to come and join us. And so he came over and so he became yeah. one of the singers at, at Club Left. In, at, like, so when, after, I guess, you know, Subway Sack, you know, I guess moved on, right? Vic went off to do his own thing, right? Yeah, Vic, Vic yeah. Vic, Vic um, he got retired and he met the love of his life and he, 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 yeah. he, uh, he didn't want to tour anymore. I think he was right. burned out by it. So, but we weren't, we just just got going <laughs> right so then it actually kind of helped that you guys were kind of like bringing in different singers if you can be the house band so it was kind of easy for you it was almost like a future audition for some of these guys knowing hey we can get one of these guys and they came along and then just Joe boxers you know was born so to speak that's it yeah it was it was a really easy transition but the most important thing about going from subway set to joe boxers that suddenly we, we all wrote everything before it was a bit Came, kind of wrote most of it or we did covers and things but all of a sudden when we were thrown together as Joe Boxers we all got together with the writing we were literally in, in, in the rehearsal room for a few months and we came up with this 
a complete set of new material. And because and Dig was such an amazing frontman and singer, he was able to bring out the best of us. And we found that, you know, he, he could he could actually do some of this stuff we were coming out with that, that other people wouldn't have been able to do. Now, like with you know, with back to stuff like you had like different it was different styles. It was kind of like you know, a little bit of swing. You know, the the '40s kind of you know fused in with with rock. So was it kind of like an easy transition? Because some of your know, boxing music is like that as well. So was it yeah. kind of like, like an easy transition for the two bands? Well, with Vic, we found that he was actually such a good songwriter. He was really good at emulating Gershwin and Cole Porter and and the sort of Rat Pack type singers. You know, he likes all that creamy stuff, Frank Sinatra and Tony Bennett and so he had a flair for that and we found that we could play that quite easily we you know found that, that, that sort of um we called it cool bop and swing that was our right. that was our title for it and so we, we yeah and nobody else was doing that at the time and we got quite a lot of attention because of it and um you know I, I, it's funny you, you do this and initially people sort of um you know pouring scorn on you so what are you doing that for and then the next thing you know they're all doing it as well <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's, it, someone has to have the courage to be the first, you know, yeah. to be to be the trail trailblazers, you know, going forward. Now, uh, you know, like Gangbusters, I, I love that album. It's you know, it's fantastic.
I discovered you guys, and uh, I don't want to make you feel old. I think I was eight years old when I first heard the song. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, it's, it was like you said, it's it's, it's very different. Um, what like, and you wrote, you know, co-wrote some of the songs. You know, just like got lucky and Johnny Friendly, which is another great song. I mean, the box, I think Frank Bruno was in the video. You know, the former heavyweight yeah. champion. Yeah. Uh, also, we'll start there. How did you get a uh, Frank? to get, come into the video because he was pretty popular when the guy shot the video right no he was he well he was the heavyweight champion of the uk and he was he, yeah. he, he, he um he went on to fight mike tyson eventually right. didn't he? a couple times yeah and um well well um the whole um on the waterfront the whole theme of the song was all about gangsters and he thought it'd right. be great to have these sort of heavy looking guys in there and we thought we well, don't get heavier than frank bruno so we yeah. got him in the video he he liked that too. It was a nice bit of promotion for him, and you know, mutual promotion there. Right, and yeah, that was a, that was a fun video. Did you guys enjoy making videos? Yeah, it was all good fun. Yeah, we, we yeah. had fun. We just got lucky, of course, because we, we right. had a, a specially built go kart for five of us, and and we had a, a, a dog that sat in the front who was trained like a, a circus dog, and he was dressed up like we were, and he was like a mascot sitting in front of the go kart. And we, f we filmed it um, going through the disused London docks. So they, they had a Land Rover and we were being pulled behind this Land Rover about 30 miles an hour or something. And they were filming us out the back of the Land Rover with a dog sitting on the front. <laughs> That's praying <laughs> that you wouldn't fall off and get killed or something. <laughs> that, that was fun. Yeah. So like, how um, did you guys come up with the name Joe Boxers? Well, oh, well, because... When we came together, one thing that we had in common, we, we, we didn't like that new romantic scene. We, that was that being and gone, and it was all frilly right. shirt and frizzy hair, and it was all a bit, you know, we didn't like that. It was, we wanted something a lot rougher and tougher, so we thought, let's call it something to do with boxers. And um, and then somebody said, oh, you know, loads of boxers are called Joe. There's Joe Frazier, Joe Bugner, Joe Louie, and at <laughs> least Joe's. Let's just call it Joe Boxers. Right. So like yeah, so you know the band like took off and came over to the states. I think you, you opened up for a couple bands and tour. So like, what, what was that experience like coming over to the states? It was brilliant. Um, we we played at the Ritz in New York first, as, as I recall. The B52s were on the bill. They were good. Okay. And um, but I was there. And what was amazing? I, I I was I was looking out into the audience, and there was Andy Warhol watching us. I couldn't believe it. It's like surreal yeah. almost. And uh, but yeah, that's what happened. And um. We then went on a five or six week tour. We went around practically every state in a, in a Greyhound bus. And the Greyhound bus had formerly belonged to the Harlem Globetrotters. Okay. So we slept on it. It was a fantastic experience. So we got to see all of the states. And, uh, you know, it, it varied from, from the East Coast to the West Coast and the Midwest. And, but I remember when we got to Los Angeles and California, it was like Beatlemania. It was sort of screaming girls and things. Whereas on the, on the, East, on the East Coast, it was more kind of, yeah, it's more cultured and more sort of yeah. CBGB's crowd. Was it hard, like, you know, some, like, venues, uh, like, kind of warming up the crowd and kind of winning them over? Because, I mean, you, you, you had the song out, I, I'd imagine, at, at that point, but, like, maybe some people didn't know anything beyond that song. So was it kind of hard to, like, win over the crowd? Yeah, I, I think um, it, it, it had been released and then we were we were touring and gradually people started to know it as we were doing the tour as it as it, it as it hit the charts we had the same experience with the first single boxer beat back in back in, in in the uk because that got released and no one had heard it Say, man, you heard about this boxer 
big tour with madness um the band madness and we went all the main cities and at the beginning no one knew who we were but as we got towards the end and the and and the the, the singles number three in the charts and everyone suddenly <laughs> knew who we were right you see, see the you know the transition yeah. as you went through the tour and it was the same i suppose in the states to some extent we've just got lucky yeah I mean, that, that's a good pairing you and madness because you know it's similar styles a, a, a little bit but it, that, that'd be a good like a good show to see both those bands yeah there was yeah there was there was yeah there were certain bands that we were um associated with just because we had the same kind of feel madness were one of them and, and dexy's midnight runners were another those two particularly was there like uh you know because the album like i said you know like gangbusters is, is is fantastic but you only had like the one hit in, in the states, um, like I don't think Boxer Beat really did did anything in, in the states. No. Were you surprised about how just it was just the one song? Just I got. Think, I think just that single was released in the states. So okay. Over here, over here, there were six singles, right? And um, you know, the three of them went in you know, top thirty. And, yeah. And, um, 
I think in the States, it was just, just got lucky that it was released. Now, do you feel like, because there are a lot of bands like who have, like, you know, European bands who have a lot of success in, in their country, you know, massive hits, but they come over to the stage, only have one hit. And then over here, they're considered like one hit wonders when yeah. in truth, they're, they're really not. But like, you know, because everything, you know, us Americans feel like the world revolves around us. So you only have the one song, so you one hit wonders when you're really not. Do you kind of like feel like, you know, and, and not, not like, you know, upset or anything like that, but like kind of like, hey, look at us. We have more than just a one hit, but unfortunately, you guys don't know it. Yeah, well, I suppose so. Um, I can't complain though. I'm, I'm pleased to have had one in the States, you know. It's, it's, right. such a big, yeah. it's such a big place to crack. You know, you hear about right. these bands, they go over there and they all split up when they tour the States because yeah. they can't cope with it. Right. But there's all these different um, regions in the world. It's, it's like the, the Dave Stewart and the Spiritual Cowboys. It wasn't big in the UK or the US, but it was huge in France and Germany. Yeah. So there's all these different places. Right. Yeah. Well, why was um, Just Got Lucky the only single release? Do you know why? In the I, I don't know. They just, I don't know. They just released it. And... Yeah. I don't know. Right. No, that's, that's a shame because, like I said, there's so many other good songs on there. Um, which one, like, besides that, which one like kind of stands out to you that, that you kind of enjoy the most? On, on, on Like Gangbusters, like which song? Oh, um, there's, there's, there's one called Hide No Hair that I like, which is quite Scar-like. I like it because right. it's quite blue beat sounding and um, the lyrics were about a peeping tom.
things you do when you're all alone, baby. You never notice me when I stop and stare when we're on the street, baby. Oh, you know it's true, you give me a view when you dress at night. You won't remember the lights up, so I can't see. You know it pleases me when you're funny you know some some of yeah. Jake's lyrics are brilliant they, things he comes out with it you know they're really uh, engaging you listen to them and think well yeah and you can follow the storyline right yeah yeah there's a lot of this, this tongue-in-cheek which i like that it's not deadly serious yeah it's quite humorous yeah like i mean i love i mean it's, it's such a silly song i love curious george yeah yeah it's like just you know it's it's, it's fun uh now that you had the second album came out and you had um um, oh, is this really the first time? But then, like, you guys kind of broke up before the third album came up. What what, what happened? Well, what happened with Joe Box is that we signed a pretty poor deal right from the start. We were being managed by Bernard Rose, the Clash manager. And um, he, um, as soon as we signed the deal, uh, the Clash asked him to go back and manage them again. So he went over to the US and we didn't see him. So we had to get friends in to help us. So we were kind of limping along without proper management and then uh we had the success but then our a and r man left the record company so we had no one at the record company looking after us right and then sort of haggled over a better deal which we eventually got but by the time we got the deal we we, so much time had elapsed that you know it it really you can't really afford to do that you know so we was uh we parted company with the record company and we recorded a third album under our own steam Angus Harris Rob put, put up the funding and we recorded back three quarters of an album. Right. And um and we had a deal on the table with, with a with a big indie label. And I was quite happy with that because you know, madness, they've been successful with a whole string of indie labels. And I thought that's fine, we don't need a major. But some of the band wanted a major. And okay. so they I think that the all the sort of spending the time worrying about business when we should have been making music, it, it took its toll, and I think everyone had had enough of it really by then. Right. It was too weary. Yeah. Now, um, I guess kind of Paul Weller came at the, at the right time then. Yeah. For you. Now, like, how did how did he discover you? He was just a fan of of the band. Well, no, he because he 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 um he had the the jam obviously album after album. He was number one and he was, he was completely successful with the jam. But it was like a straitjacket for him because he was writing so much stuff and he wanted to do solely music and he yeah. had the same three piece band and everything was going to sound like the jam and so. He, he wanted to move into that sort of most handy Northern Soul sort of idea that, that we we were doing the same thing basically. So he um he set up the Style Council and I was I was aware of them, but um I knew that we were going to be on a kind of crash course to to meet basically because we were doing the same sort of thing. And um so our, our singles we we've been on top of the pops a lot and he would have spotted us and just got lucky particularly was very much in his vein and he phoned me up and just said Do you want to come down and play on the album right so I was, I was, I, yeah i went down there and, and, and it was great actually yeah Meet, meeting him was because he was he was a um i was a big fan of his i'd had all the jam records and 
so yeah so that was, was a great experience right was because i mean i honestly i don't, don't remember like the jam i remember at style council before discovering the the jam at, so i really didn't like because i guess it was kind of a backlash right of the jam fans change you know and then him changing styles and music so was that kind of were you like aware of that like there was going to uh, be like a backlash there were a lot of disappointed jam fans I right broken up. You know, it must have been furious but um you know, it's fully understandable why he did it yeah and um He's, he's, he's gone on to do so many different styles. It must have been such a, um, a li so liberating for him to be able to, right. to go on and do all these different things. Yeah. And yeah. Because yeah. it's great because you want, you know, creative people to express themselves. You don't want to be this, put out the same album, you know, over and over again, the jam volume one, volume two. You know, look, Robert Plant does that too. You know, it pisses off all the Led Zeppelin fans, but he's just, you know, expressing his creative side. So, you know, it's it's good. You like I say, you really don't want to have the same album over and over again, and attract different fans. So you're opening up. There's plenty of people in the world, different music lovers. So you're just attracting more people that way as well. Because yeah. I mean, I like I said, discovered the the style council first. You know, with uh, my ever changing moods. That was I think the you know the single that was out in the in the states. So now I imagine you came and toured with with the style council again in the states, right? No, I, I didn't. I didn't go on tour with the Style Council. I oh, just no? played, okay. just played oh. on their debut album. Okay. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, I thought it was Paul Weller's number one over here at the moment with his new album. Okay. Yeah. That's, so yeah. so I, I get asked to do a lot of um, podcasts to do with with the Style Council because he's got so many fans as Paul Weller. There's a whole um, army of them out there. Yeah. Now, like, what was like? I mentioned before, like the different like lead singers. What was he compared to, like Dig, like just just their style and like you know attitude and like kind of like leadership and stuff like that. Um, well, with Joe Boxes, it was very much a collaboration. You know, we would usually come up with the with the song ideas first, and then Dig would come along and say, "Yeah, I like that." I'll, and then he'd write some lyrics and and, and some he he'd sort of join in with what we were doing more. But with uh, Paul Weller, he you know he's got the whole thing worked out from the start. So he already knows exactly what he wants to do and he's probably laid a few tracks down already. So, um, yeah, I'm, Weller gets more involved with the whole production, I think, probably. Yeah. So, like, obviously last year and kind of bleeding into this year was kind of like a big pause for everybody. What, what did you do to keep busy? Were you writing music? Were you also doing we'll virtual concerts? Just before the lockdown, um, we, we got together at a subway set again uh, okay. with Vic Goddard and we recorded an album produced by Mick Jones of The Clash. Oh, wow. And, and it's called Moments Like These. And it, and it, we completed it and we we're just about to release it. And then along came the lockdown, you know, the pandemic. Yeah. And so we put it on hold until that's well and truly over. And so that's going to be released probably, hopefully, at the end of this year. So that's, that's called Moments Like These by Subway Set. And then, but also we've we've just put together a tour for Joe Boxers. This is the first first Joe Boxers shows in 35 years. So we've oh, got wow. 100, the Hundred Club in London that's sold out, and we'll okay. just put together some regionals around that. So we'll, we'll be going to play Brighton, Liverpool, Colchester, Bristol, maybe a couple of others. So that's all coming together at this moment. Oh, that's awesome! Any like future plans to come over here or no? Oh, I hope so. That'd be fantastic. Well, what I'm thinking is that this tour is you know the first thing we've done in 35 years i hope that will open the door to festivals and mm. and bigger things 
Unfortunately, right. so the next stop would be we come to the US. Yeah. But yeah, I'm hoping for festivals next next summer. So summer 22, hopefully there's good. Right. We've had a few offers of festivals. So okay. hopefully we'll do about six or seven festivals here and see what right. comes after that. Oh, that's great. They're those like nostalgia, like 80s festivals, are those the ones that they do? Well, there's, there's a lot of different ones. There are some 80s ones, but there's also right. there's a couple of Scar festivals. And, then there's, um, and the, the, the older bands that have been around, they seem to call them heritage bands over here. So okay. there's a big market for heritage bands. So right. I think we get into the heritage, 80s, Scar, and, and contemporary yeah. bracket. Right. No, that, that, that's, that's perfect. This way, you're not limited. <laughs> yeah. You can play them all. <laughs> yeah, now, yeah, like just got lucky. It was also, you know, featured, you know, in a couple movies, and it's kind of like has a great place, you know, in pop culture as a forty-year-old virgin. So, like, what was your favorite like placement of the song? Oh yeah, forty-year-old virgin. Well, I like actually, I like the other one. Just got just just my just my luck with Lindsay Lohan because mm -hmm. they've actually they've used just got lucky as the opening theme right. to the movie, and and it's another band playing it. They're emulating the Joe Box, isn't it? And it sounds great actually. <laughs> Sounds really good what they've done. Yeah. And then I know like um, your song, She Got Sex, also was covered by Samantha Fox. Her yeah. Name was called He Got Sex. I know every, every you know, boy, teenage boy loved her. So was that kind of cool to see her, you know? Definitely. Yeah, that, yeah. Went, that, that went double platinum on, yeah. on her album. That did really well. Yeah. It was nice. To, to, I, I like it when people, and that's the whole point of writing this song is, is so that other people will cover it. You know, a lot of people don't seem to get that. In the old days, you had Tim Panelli, had people, you know, over, you know, you, you had, the, was it the Bill Building in Motown? You, you, you had people that wrote songs yeah. to be covered by as many people as possible. Whereas, you know, it's different now. People write songs, they, they kind of get offended if somebody else does them, it seems. But yeah, it's great. The, the more the more usage, the better. Exactly. Yeah, especially if, especially if you wrote the song too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. So do you remember where you were the first time you heard like one of your songs on the radio? Um, oh, well, the, over here we had somebody called John Peel and he used to play. He was great because that's probably why so many great bands took off through the UK because there, there was an outlet for first bands. So bands would get together and if, it, if their half, stuff was half good, John Peel would play it on national radio. And so that was always the first step, get your, get your music played on John Peel. So I remember he played my first band's first single and it was amazing to hear that on the radio. That was a, you get really elated when you hear that. And I immediately got on the phone to all my mates. Did you hear that? <laughs> <laughs> Played it on John Peel. Yeah, uh, that, that's awesome. But I really appreciate your time today, Chris, and good luck with the album, you know, coming up. And, and then um, good luck touring. And hopefully, you know, in the future, we'll see Joe Boxer come over here. That would be fantastic. Yeah, so, so if, if anyone's in the UK in uh, November 2021 this year, We've got, there's going to be a Joe Boxer's tour, so look out for that. And a special thanks to Chris for joining me today. You can follow him on Twitter at ChrisBostock01, and you can go to JoeBoxers.net. That's their website. Very exciting. Hopefully they'll come over here in a few years to perform that'd be awesome and if you have a guest suggestion hit me up on twitter at the first nola one nine or like the page Ruby my youth on facebook go to itunes check out all the past episodes we've had while you're there please rate and review the show don't have itunes not a problem shows on soundcloud podbean spotify wherever podcasts are found new episode comes in every week 
stay safe, everybody. We'll see you then.